You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers, lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years, journalists, and non-lawyers eager to improve their understanding of national security issues. And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing issues in national security law today. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. But never boring, unless you have the tiny attention span of a five-year-old. You know, there may be people out there like that, but they are not our listeners. Our (laughs) listeners have a laser focus. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to the podcast. You can also find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. Well, hi, everybody. Today we continue our series on private national security law with a discussion about private national security investigations and the contact of private businesses. Uh, We also are going to discuss the role attorneys play in representing figures before congressional oversight. Our guest that we're privileged to have here today is Ken Weinstein, and that is how it's pronounced. We're honored to have you here today, sir. Thanks. Good to see you. Good to be here. All right. Let's give you a little background, and this is where we get to say the stuff that you would never say about yourself. You have an amazing bio. You were President Bush's Homeland Security Advisor. You were first Assistant Attorney General for National Security, as in the first. um, There was no mold. You built that house. You were the United States Attorney for Washington, D.C., and you've been General Counsel for the FBI. You are, I think, fairly characterized as an extreme overachiever. And not only did you do that, but you've also performed very, very important oversight, which has bettered the FBI, bettered terrorism investigations, and made everybody reflect on how they approach things, including a review of the Fort Hood shootings that involved uh, Major Nidal Hassan. And uh, good Lord, Davis Polk is very lucky to have you because in addition to other things, you've done something very important as the dad of multiple daughters. You have also looked at improper conduct by the National Collegiate Athletic Association, and you may have even looked at some other things at UNC Chapel Hill, I think. Sure did. Um, and that, it doesn't stop there, but we'll wait till the end to add your latest extreme accomplishment. Anyway, we could not be happier to have you. Um, it's a delight. Thanks for coming. Great. Thanks for having me. The, the thing that I'm most proud of was being your colleague, though, as Assistant United States Attorney in the best U.S. Attorney's Office in the country in D.C. That's right. Did you hear that, SDNY? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope you're saying ouch. <laughs> well, so you're clearly one of the world's leading authorities on a variety of national security law issues. 
but we like to start with internal investigations. First, what is an internal investigation? And second, how do they relate to national security? Well, let's start with the first question, what is an internal investigation? And that's a bit of a term of art, but I think it's it's pretty intuitive. Uh, you have investigations that are initiated by enforcement or regulatory authorities that focus on potential misconduct. And you have them in various different constructs. You have the traditional one that Lisa and I did for many years where you work in a grand jury and investigate potential crime. Um, you also have regulatory investigations and the like. But those are ones that are initiated and run by government agencies looking at misconduct. And, and for my purposes, I'm talking largely about misconduct or alleged misconduct within a company or an organization. But the internal investigation is when the company or organization itself identifies the potential of something wrong that went on within its ranks and then goes and investigates that possibility of misconduct for purposes of, A, potentially disclosing it to the government so that the government can or can choose to or not to take action, B, to take personnel action against the person or persons who are responsible for that misconduct, C, to identify where there's a problem or a glitch in their compliance program that allowed for this misconduct to happen, and D, to then go and fix the compliance program or bolster the training uh, or enhance the messaging to the workforce that that kind of conduct or misconduct is not tolerated. So those are the purposes, which are different, obviously, from this, the punitive purposes, uh, more punitive purposes that the government might have when they initiate an investigation. So that's that's what happens. And look, these internal investigations have been going on for generations. In the aftermath of WorldCom and Enron in the early 2000s, this practice sort of went on steroids in the sense that the laws were recrafted uh, and enforcement started to be conducted in a way that really motivated, incentivized companies to hire lawyers when they thought there was a problem and have those lawyers either either hire outside lawyers or use their own lawyers to, to investigate whether there's a problem, disclose the problems, then mitigate them looking forward, and then hope that um, like what happened to Arthur Anderson, for example, doesn't happen to them. And so that the trend has been in a steady increase in the use of internal investigations as a response to problems within in companies. And so you now, because the, the way the incentive scheme is set up, whether it's the Justice Department or the SEC or wh whatever, they have now they've got internal guidelines to their people saying that one of the things you should do in deciding whether to charge a company, deciding whether to you know take regulatory action against the company, is look at whether that company has tried to put a good compliance program in place, and whether in the, in the this particular instance. When the company found there seemed there was a possibility of misconduct, did they sweep it under the rug, or did they go in and try to dig it out, find out what it was, address the problem, and then next whether they disclosed to the government? And that incentive scheme now is very tangible and very real. In that, if, if a company did do what I just described, it's a decent chance they will not be charged. If they didn't do that, if they tried to sweep it under the rug and the government found out about it, nonetheless then a much greater chance that they will be charged. So the, these incentive schemes are now in place as a matter of internal guidelines within the federal agencies and then similar, similarly in state agencies. They have now been internalized within the DNA of most American companies, and you now have a whole segment of the bar, the white-collar bar, that does this kind of work. And so now, you know, white the white-collar practice, which 
in the old days was much more the traditional Perry Mason kind of practice, which is probably an illusion that many of our listeners would not have any idea what I'm talking about, uh, a TV show back in the old days. Uh, but where you know the white-collar practice was more traditionally just representing an individual, sometimes a company, in court against um, an enforcement action. Now a large part of the white-collar bar is attorneys and law firms like, like mine. They get called in by companies, institutions that have problems and are asked to then do these investigations. And then as we do these investigations and find out if there's a problem, then interface with the relevant agencies and try to persuade those agencies that there's no need for them to take action. So that's that's a large part of my white-collar practice and now has become a large part of the white-collar practice in general. So let me ask you a question. In that context, I imagine there are lots of potential national security type of issues that can come up. When would you walk through the door? What would be um, sort of a situation, a law that would be violated that would pertain to national security where you would immediately go in and you would begin to try to negotiate for something, uh, particularly to demonstrate the good intentions of the company and a desire to clean up whatever problems they may have? Right, so that's a good question. Just to break that down, the first part of the question, I think, is how does this play out in the national security sphere? And so the, the question is, okay, what is that? What is sort of the, national, the practice of national security law? And just for purposes, definitional purposes of this podcast, when I talk about that, I'm talking about areas of practice that have national security dimensions like export control, laws that limit what licensed technology can be transported overseas. CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, that reviews transactions where foreign interests purchase American companies that have national security dimensions to them. Um, leak investigations involving leaks by private you know, like contractors and the like of classified Which seems to be a lot of the leak cases, at least we've seen in the media. A lot of those. A lot of those. So the national security practice is, is really a collection of a number of discrete practices, but they all have national security implications. Cyber, obviously, is probably the biggest one right now and sort of the hottest one. So it's it's really just taking what I described a minute ago about the internal investigation practice and applying it to potential violations that have national security implications. A company that, like a bank, a lot of the, the big banks have been investigated but have initially internally investigated themselves for having allowed financial transactions with Iran, for example. Right, sanctioned nations, other people that are falling under that sanctions right. regime. So we've been, um, uh, um, law firms have been brought in to do investigations to see whether that happened intentionally or unintentionally. So anyway, so the, you have a lot of internal investigation work now done in that in these areas. To add to that, you asked about um, the implications of these kind of investigations. In the national security area, a lot of the these violations uh, are things that might be found in government contractors, so companies that do business with the government. Maybe classified contracts, that kind of thing. That too, yep, exactly. But not in, in classified or unclassified, and the stakes are even higher for government contractors. And the reason is because not only can they face sanction by the Justice Department, let's say, but also, if they're found to have committed misconduct to a certain degree, they might lose their ability to do business with the U.S. government. And if you're a Boeing or you're a Lockheed or, you know, countless other government contractors, big and small, 
that can be a death sentence. Sure, that's so, a lot of your revenue. And so it could be a lot of the company's revenue. So that decision about whether to be conscientious and try to deal forthrightly with misconduct that is in every company, right? I mean, we're human, so every company has problems. That decision is even more important, and the stakes are even higher for government contractors because if they make the wrong decision and the government finds out about it, they stand to lose a lot of business. So private companies, make sure your lawyers are involved early and often. (laughs) Definitely. And so what are some of the legal issues that come up in this context? Um, I'm thinking of all the layers of things that you're talking about here, sort of classified documents, corporate concerns in general. Can you outline what some of the things are that come up just in terms of legal issues? Well, look, from sort of general to specific, in terms of a decision whether or not to open an internal investigation. I get it that that's a difficult decision for any company, any organization, because you're asking typically uh, either an in-house lawyer or lawyers or somebody from a law firm to come in and start interviewing people and Poking asking around, tough right? questions. <laughs> Did you do something wrong? And that's that's just a tough thing, especially for a company that's proud of itself doing the right thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so... It's a, it's a difficult thing to do it almost emotionally in the first instance. It also, you sort of open Pandora's box, right? Once you, you bring somebody in to start looking at uh, whether there's, there are problems, you don't know where it's going to lead. You could find other problems, You could right? find other problems, and, it's, and, and once you take that step, it's tough to turn back. So it's a, it's a fateful step, but it's one where for the set, the set of reasons I discussed earlier is increasingly being made on the side of, yes, let's go forward and investigate. Um, so that, that's the, the broader issue that every company faces. In terms of lesser issues, you've got things like, what about privilege? You know, you bring in an outside counsel. Outside counsel is going to look to see whether uh, maybe somebody in the, you know, down in the, in the middle of the company has been dealing with a, an agent who's been dealing with Iran, say. Uh, do you bring in the, the law firm and have that law firm start interviewing people? Well, then what happens when the outside lawyer starts getting information from people in that company and writing it down in memos? Could those memos maybe be discoverable by other parties who might want to sue the company? You know, just sure. to spit it out. Let's just say these sanction violations result in, uh, you know, bad publicity and reputational damage or penalties that really hit the bottom line. Shareholders say, "Wait a minute, we we want to sue for this misconduct because the, for, based on the damage to this, our stock price, and in fact, we want the interview memos where Weinstein and his colleagues came in and interviewed the the people who uh, laid out the the misconduct. So you've got to take steps to ensure that things like that are privileged because the last thing a company wants to do is do the right thing, be conscientious and forthright with misconduct and with the government." only to then expose itself to huge wow. liability on the back end. So that's a, that's the type of issue you have to be thinking about. And, and there are ways of structuring the investigation so that you can best insulate yourself from that eventuality. Wow, that is something that I, I don't think there's a substitute for experience, dealing with heavy things and privilege logs and taint reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd like to shift just a little bit here, but I have also observed, because, yeah, I look at C-SPAN, I'm that nerd. Um, but I know that you have also had, obviously, the privilege, and they're lucky to have you, to represent a number of people in the context of congressional oversight. And I can only imagine 
Uh, these are people who reached out to you. They know you. They know the quality of your work. They trust you. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, that, the kinds of congressional oversight that might occur pertaining to national security and you know, the sort of situations in which they would call people who would need representation, sort of what that is like, without naming names unless you want to? Okay. Um, well, let's, <laughs> let, let's, let's talk sort of high level for a second. What is congressional oversight? I mean, um, just so we all kind of have a baseline. Congress obviously has a number of constitutional functions. One of the things it does is, is exercises oversight of the executive branch. It does that through the power of the purse, right? They have the appropriation authority. So they don't like something that the executive branch is doing. They can defund that operation. That's one thing they can do. They can conduct oversight by legislation. They can say we don't like the way that the government is doing this function in the intelligence community, so we're going to pass a law that says they, they that limits their ability to do that. And we're in the middle right this very moment uh, of a debate about something that's near and dear to your heart, which is Section 702, which is uh, the authority that Congress gave the executive branch to do electronic surveillance of foreign threats overseas. And there's been a debate about the privacy implications of that surveillance, like that collection, that wiretapping of communications, and the use of the information that's collected from those communications and how it can or, or should and shouldn't be usable by the government. And so Congress is now actually very actively today considering what limitations to impose on that. So that's a way that sort of oversight is conducted. But the classic oversight is literally Congress asking the executive branch, okay, you have this particular function. How are you doing? Where are the weaknesses? Where are the strengths? Where are you efficient? Where are you inefficient? Which is perfectly appropriate, and it's well within the right of Congress to do that. And they've got the power to haul people before Congress and ask them questions. And we with see sometimes it, with sometimes outstanding results for the public. Absolutely, right? it's absolutely critical. I mean, yeah. in, in the intelligence area, of course, the seminal event in that regard was the. the Frank Church Committee um, back in the 1970s that really disclosed some abuses, multiple abuses by the intelligence community. And that expose, that, that, those disclosures resulted in tremendous change and improvement to our, our governmental structure. We had, it, it caused the, the establishment of the intelligence committees and stricter oversight, et cetera. So, FISA yes. too, I believe, unless I'm mistaken. FISA, FISA was the Foreign uh, Intelligence Surveillance Act yeah, was passed in 1978 in the aftermath of that. Absolutely. So, Oversight can be a very good thing. Hard to say that when you're a government official and having to trudge up to Capitol Hill and answer questions all the time, but it is, it's a very important function. And in the intelligence area, it's particularly important because intelligence activities are conducted outside the realm of public knowledge um, because it's classified. And it's, so therefore, it's very important that the intelligence committees are kept informed of what the government's intelligence operations are and what they're doing. And when there are problems, in fact, the uh, National Security Act of 1947 requires that the intelligence committees be as a fully, fully and currently informed of all intelligence activities. And, um, and so that's an important part of it. Uh, and, you know, I was very much involved in that in the government, reporting up to Congress. Frequently. Had, Did you, you had like a, a car service that just took I you back and forth? Yeah. Back and forth, back and I forth. I testified upwards of 30 times, I think. You know, it's just... But it, <laughs> Um, so it's an important function, but it's very difficult for a number of reasons. It's a um, difficult context to be a witness 
it's a difficult context to be a lawyer for a client. Well, great segue into our next question, which is, how do you represent a client that needs to appear before one of these oversight committees? Well, there are a few things you have to keep in mind, especially if you're somebody like us who came out of the, grew up in the court system. And when you go into the court system, whether you're litigating, doing civil litigation, whether you're doing criminal litigation as a defense attorney or a prosecutor, you always have in the back of your mind that there's a structure of rules and that the rules will always prevail. Oh, yeah. We always Evidence complain, rules, local rules, yeah, the whole thing. We right? always complain that maybe we didn't get the right call by the judge, but at the end of the day, you know that these rules apply. When you go to Congress, you think, okay, I'm. it's like a court. A lot of paneling on the walls. You know, <laughs> people often, you know, look like sort of quasi like judges up there on the on the leather on the bench chairs and leather chairs and everything. And you think that there's there should be the rule, rules, but there really aren't any rules. Oh, that's great. That's it's, comfortable. <laughs> it's 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 a little bit like the Wild West, which is um, terrifying but also exciting because um, you know we, you realize very early on a that the rules are malleable. I'm overstating it, but the rules are malleable. And the second principle that you have to keep in mind is that it's unlike in court, it's not necessarily a search for the truth. Oh, there's a degree of theater for sure, I would think. It's a, it's a search for propounding a position. <laughs> so every person who testifies up there is seen not only as a source of information, but also as a way to support a a member's particular position. So a member with a senator or congressperson. And that's the way it is. And so as a witness, you have to keep that in mind. You've got to answer accurately and fully, but also be prepared that a particular member is going to ask you a question a particular way and want an answer that's going to support his or her position, political position. And another member will do the opposite. And so it's challenging as a, as a witness it's even more challenging in some ways as a lawyer. Yeah, how would you prep for that with all these different points of view and agendas? It's you have to know the agendas, know the sort of the political lay of the land, you know what the issues are at, at the time, and you have to have a client who's willing to listen to that and is, has an antenna to understand that there are agendas out there. And that you, it doesn't mean that you tailor your, your answer to try to satisfy those agendas. But you do, as you're giving your answer, you think of the lines of attack that will come at your answer and anticipate them with whatever informa additional information would meet those lines of attack. See, that's the way you sort of neutralize the lines of attack and are complete and accurate. It's tough to do. And I had, yeah, as you mentioned, like I it. just recently was representing two of our country's most wonderful public servants, Jim Clapper and John Brennan, who testified uh, up in Capitol Hill, I guess, this spring about the intelligence community's investigation into the Russian influence in the election. And, you know, no more politically fraught issue than that issue. But I will I give them great credit because they went up there and just laid it out in a very objective way. Intelligence professionals tend to be trained to do that. And by and large, um, the members actually, despite how politically fraught the situation was, I think receive their testimony, the public testimony, in that way. And it actually, I think, they they helped sort of move the ball forward in terms of explaining to the American people what the threat was and what the intelligence community had done you know, to meet that threat. That is a huge challenge. 
Mm -hmm. So I guess one question that I, I have is kind of basic sort of technical questions here for young lawyers. If you're representing a company and the matter is going to go, you're going to have to go to the government, and it looks like there would be a need for you to be a part of passing some information which is of a classified nature. Do private lawyers get security clearances, and what kind of a security clearance is it? And sort of, what is the process that one goes through? They're not—they're not available for sale on the dark net. Obviously, you've had the highest clearances in the country. How does that work at this point? Right. I've, I've had my clearances essentially continued since government because I've been on a number of boards and <clears throat> commissions and the like um, for the intelligence community. So that's how I've maintained my clearances. But it's been tremendously helpful because, for instance, I got called by a company just recently that was concerned that maybe there was a foreign power that was trying to ingratiate itself or members of it trying to ingratiate itself with people within that company to try to get information out of that company. And that was ended up requiring becoming knowledgeable about classified information. I had those clearances. Obviously, leak investigations. Extended leak investigation, by definition, sure. involves classified information. You can work on them. Um, and especially in the government contracting world, uh, and there's a lot of legal work in that area here in D.C., obviously, uh, it's really helpful to have your, your clearances. And so you have to, you know, you have to be sponsored for it. There has to be a governmental interest in you getting those clearances. Um, but it's, um, it, if you want to work in the national security area, it's, it's pretty important. Right. So avoid those things like, you know, felony convictions, tax fraud, all the Not other a good stuff. idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stay away from the parade of horribles. Mm-hmm. Well, um, one of the things that you do very well is I think you're pretty good at dispensing advice. Um, what advice would Bad you give move. a young lawyer who maybe hasn't quite stepped foot in this world, but would like to? Well, I guess, once again, starting with the general, I mean, I, I think um, as a young lawyer, and I can vaguely recall being a young lawyer, <laughs> it's been quite a while, um, it's important to get a variety of experiences. So everybody's in a hurry to jump right into a specialization. Um, and I was too in some ways, but maybe that's not the best thing to do. So sometimes going and just getting general legal experience uh, is a good thing, whether it's in a law firm or in a company or in government, because that's valuable just understanding the practice of law, even if what you want to do is really dive into a specific area of national security law. So that's sort of my first general piece of advice. Second would be just in the course of your your career, try to get a variety of experiences because you, you know, you find, you, you get better at being a lawyer of any kind each stage you go through. So I, I'm, I was in government, I'm now in private practice. If I were to be in government again, I'd be a better government lawyer from my private practice experience and vice versa. I, I'm in the law firm. If I went in-house and was a lawyer for a company and came back to the law firm, I'd be a better law firm lawyer for that in-house experience Sure. and so on and so forth. So that's, I guess, another point I would make. Um, and then the point that I, I really feel, this, this is my own thing, but um, if you have the opportunity to do public service, there's just nothing better than public service. It's, I mean, the s- substance um, of public service, you, you have the opportunity to do things which are really interesting. You get a lot of responsibility um, in, in government. Yeah. You tend to more than you tend, and this is gross generalization, but more than you tend to get in the private sector. And you get to work for the public benefit. Um, there's nothing better than that. And so, especially if you want to practice in the national security space, it's really important, I think, to get uh, public service experience and also particularly fulfilling, too. Um, so I guess if I had sort of three broader points, it would be that. 
And then in terms of sort of specific ideas, look, in terms of national security law, there are relatively few places in the government where you get that kind of experience. You know, let's say National Security Division, the Justice Department, OFAC, parts of commerce. Um, so I'm talking about the federal government. Um, but you, could, you, should, you should look for those areas, State Department, Legal Advisor's Office, this kind of thing. Uh, and uh, obviously DHS, FBI, CIA. DOD. DOD, Lots of lawyers at DOD. Um, so if, if I were to map out a national security law practice path, it might be, you know, go to a firm for a while, get <laughs> pay off your debts from law yeah, school. Yeah, there's that. Student loans be gone. Get, get a general sort of baseline experience level, and then that makes you sort of more appealing to um, if you happen to be near D.C., to applying for government positions and then trying to get a government position. And, I, and, I, and, and really my pet argument, which is very parochial, is be an assistant U.S. attorney. Best job in the world. I, uh, I would have to agree with that. Um, okay, we, we ask, we force this on every um, guest of the podcast, but take a minute and imagine that Nicole is a young lawyer with a practice in San Francisco. Her job is to represent startups, and she's got tons of people that she knows from her days at Berkeley slash Stanford, people she used to play beer pong with. They're now out there starting up a variety of companies. One of the things that they're looking forward to is getting all sorts of great government contracts, one, and two, possibly unloading that company to venture capitalists from whatever country in the world, who cares, in the future. And she's got to advise these sort of wild, young, ambitious uh, people with no background in national security. What general advice would you give her in terms of interacting with that kind of a client and that dynamic? That's a particular challenge. And it's, I'm not saying that to be specific about the Bay Area. I'm not saying that to be specific <laughs> about startups in Silicon Valley. Hey, where'd you go to school, dude? I'm yeah, just, there you uh, go. Yeah, you, there's a little Bay Area there. There's out there. Born out there. But, um, one one pattern you can sort of see in this work is that companies develop from small to medium to large size. And sometimes companies develop very quickly, grow very quickly. And especially in this kind of field that you're talking about, IT startups in Silicon Valley. I mean, they tend to get to a point where they grow exponentially in terms of size of operations, amount of business, revenue, this kind of thing. And invariably, the compliance function doesn't keep pace with the growth of the company. It lags, which is to be expected, right? I mean, you, sure. you, you suddenly get a big contract and boom, you're off to the races, you're selling. You're not going to stop and say, I'm sorry, we cannot sell you these $500 million worth of computers this year until we hire 10 more compliance people and they set trainings in place. It just doesn't happen that way, right? So there's always that lag time. And You're you set up the meditation room for the employees and the juice bar in the lobby. Well, and, you know. That's probably done first out there, yeah. So, <laughs> but that point applies to small startups. It applies to 100-year-old iconic American companies. I mean, it's just it just does. It's And so you often see very successful companies that have immature compliance programs. So I'm talking about compliance programs. I'm talking about uh, training programs policies and procedures in place that tell employees what they should and shouldn't do, what they should do if they find out that someone's doing something wrong, you know, what the rules are on dealing with foreign government officials, what you can give them, 
uh, appropriately what you can't give them, uh, and you know, and, and what giving them if you give them something whether that would violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, all these kind of things. <laughs> this just takes a while to develop that, and so you see that particularly in this area, and that's why I've often found that there's often like one heroic, smart, visionary person, not necessarily a lawyer, but person in the leadership of those companies who is looking sort of seeing around the corners and seeing, aha, sure. we need to make sure we do what we can to ensure compliance because at some point somebody's going to do something wrong that's going to come out and then we're, they're going to, they, the public, they, Congress, they, the regulators and enforcement uh, agencies are going to look at us and ask what we did. And those companies that have that person at the early stages are the ones who end up. So be that out. person. Right. Your job is to be that person. <laughs> All right. Well, um, this has been great. Let's let's talk for just a second. You've got. Uh, we always ask everybody if you're you know publishing things, if you have anything new that you'd like to mention. But you've actually you've got a new gig, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the the governor's office um, called a month ago or so, and uh, the governor decided that he wanted to impanel a, an advisory board to advise him on recommended changes to the counterterrorism apparatus in New York State. This is Governor Cuomo in New York State. Uh, any changes to their um, efforts to protect critical infrastructure like airports, bridges, and the like. They've got and a lot of that, right? They got a, a lot, lot of, of ports. That, and they got a lot of, and there are a lot of threats that are directed at New York. And so he wisely said, look, we need to make sure that we're keeping up with the threat. And so he impaneled this group. That's myself and Lisa Monica, who is my uh, successor as Homeland Security Advisor, and then Ray Kelly, who is, you know, Commissioner of New York. And three of us have given the governor some recommendations about how they can improve their counterterrorism readiness and apparatus sure. and, and the organization how to retool the organizational scheme to improve coordination among all the counterterrorism assets in the state. Um, and this has been done with all the counterterrorism officials throughout the state. It's been a very healthy process. And then he's uh, he's asked us to sort of to go into a second stage where we help with the implementation of those recommendations wow. and look at readiness more generally. So it's a, it's a fun thing. And sort of doing what we did, at least Lisa Monaco and I did at the federal level, doing it at the state level. Sure. Well, um, good. I hope that goes really well. We're so grateful that you came in today. We wish you luck. We're very happy to hear that the firm of Davis Polk had the insight to bring you on. Good for them. It's very nice of you. Um, And we hope that you'll come back in the future to speak on another topic uh, regarding national security law. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security for the American Bar Association. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you'll have to pop vitamin D, or you would prefer to get sunlight and be outside, maybe be in private practice doing private national security law. Or you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history. And you don't want to sit on the sidelines. Join us next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We hope to see you at our next conference, our next breakfast program, or maybe one of our lunches. And just remember, listening to a podcast, that's informative. But social networking, it isn't really networking. Show up at one of our events. Check us out at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity. Or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. 
And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website, along with some other exciting books, including I'm Happy to Report, one on public-private partnerships to protect critical infrastructure. So from all of us here, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ADA Matt Sack. 